Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's gonna be explanation after that. Like I'm gonna have to explain myself, so. So. I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Hi, you're listening to the Fem South podcast, and I'm your host, Lee. This is our second part of our series on music and poetry for healing. For our last episode, we interviewed singer-songwriter of folk medicine music, Haley Harkin. So if you missed that episode, you can check it out. It's episode 20, part one. We've also had other musical guests on our show, Emily Stuckey, Lucky Charms, Brenda Bledsoe, and Matt Myrick. So please take some time and go back and check those musical guests out and check out some of our um, other episodes. So we are continuing our conversation about the power of using poetry and music to heal, whether intentionally or unintentionally, these two art forms have extreme healing qualities. And our special guest today to talk with us about this is singer, songwriter, and poet Jolene Thibodeau. Jolene is a woman of many talents. She's a published author, and her latest book is entitled How to Grieve. She's starting an indie publishing company called BB Royal that will focus on uplifting lesser-known voices in music and writing. BB Royal is set to launch in July 2021, so be on the lookout. Um, something that I'm really interested in that she's doing is her latest project to recover and reproduce traditional Southern and indigenous lullabies. She's going to talk with us a little bit about that project today, and she's looking for women and singers to sing and help her record these lullabies. So if you're interested, you can reach out to Fem South and I can connect you with her. Um, I wanted to read really quickly how she describes herself on her website. She says that she was raised slowly in a red dirt state by a literary mother born in an astrobleem who taught her to embrace duality, sarcasm, and escape plans. 
And I can say for certainty after spending some time getting to know Jolene that she is an amazing storyteller. She has so many wonderful stories to tell and she's passionate about ancestral wisdom and passing these stories down. And so uh, today she's going to share a few of her poems and one of her lullabies and uh, talk with us a little bit more about how she came to love and write poetry and how she came to use music and poetry to heal some serious and traumatic injuries in her life. But before we get started with Jolene, I did promise that I would read some poetry. And so I wanted to end the introduction with a really quick poem from Faru Farksad's book of poetry entitled Sin, translated by Sholay Wolpe. This poem is entitled The Gift. I speak from the deep end of night, of end of darkness I speak, I speak of deep night ending. O kind friend, if you visit my house, bring me a lamp, cut me a window, so I can gaze at the swarming alley of the fortunate. So thank you so much, Jolene, for joining me today to talk about music and poetry and to perform some of your poems and some of your songs. I'm very excited to have you on today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So Jolene, you are a poet, a singer, songwriter, and you come from a family of musicians. And so I think maybe my first question for you is, what ways are these two mediums healing and how did you choose poetry and music as your form of expression? Hmm. Well, I do come from a family of musicians. My father was a clarinet player and there were many banjo players and uh, porch players. I'm from Alabama originally for many generations and so music and poetry seem to always be a part of my life. I don't remember a time where there weren't people playing, singing, uh, even speaking in poetic rhythms and cadence, just in terms of our accents as Southerners. And I think as a child, I started out like everybody with the, you know, nursery rhymes and jump rope songs and lullabies. So for me, that was that was my first experience with poetry and music. It was just natural sounds around me. And growing up rurally also, I think there were a lot of um, sounds in nature that were poetical, birds and crickets and frogs at night all singing. So it wasn't until I was, uh, well, I guess at 12 years old, I do remember being introduced to formal poetry. My mother gave me a book by Alice Walker, um, Radical Petunias and Other Essays. And um, and I do just remember uh, she just gave me this book, but there was no real expectation uh, for us to have some deep discussion about poetry. She just loved poetry and wanted me to love it and um, knew that I already had an inclination towards p poetry as a form of, I enjoyed short poems and I liked to rhyme around the house. And she picked up on that and encouraged it naturally through uh, this book. And 
that book was very profound for me because I was only 12 and Alice Walker, she's, she's pretty deep. And um, she wrote The Color Purple, of course, and so many other beautiful things that have changed so many people's lives. But she definitely changed mine, although I didn't really understand how there was a line in one of the poems uh, it's called Be Nobody's Darling. And, uh, and I remember that one little verse that said, be nobody's darling, be an outcast so that you can be fit to be among your dead. And I just remembered not really understanding what she meant, but somehow feeling that bit of poetry. And then that same year, um, I uh, had to have spinal cord surgery at a children's hospital in Birmingham. So I was taken out of school and put into the hospital. I was there for many months. Uh, my mother and I were quite isolated there from friends and family because we lived rurally. We traveled to the hospital, which was in Birmingham. And uh, of course, the rest of the family had to work and go to school. So it was just the two of us. And my mother chose, again, poetry to comfort me and to give me some sense of uh, rhythm and heartbeat, lulling me into some sort of peace with these intonations that she used when she read poetry. And, you know, again, I really didn't have any kind of true understanding of, like, collegiate understanding of poetry, and I didn't need to. It was just something that was there to help me heal. It created space for the pain to exist, which was completely necessary because I was in a lot of pain. And instead of denying it, it just, it sort of made this womb-like space in terms of the sound in the hospital room between my mother and I. So obviously that affected me. But I think I started to wonder when I was about 14 about um, the idea of poetry as a way of life. And I think you know, my grandmother had a lot to do with that. She didn't really read anything except the Bible and Southern Living. But she um, she lived her life very poetically. And in thinking about this, I remember there were there was a woman that lived next door to my grandmother who was dying. And my grandmother helped the husband and the relatives just day in and day out with the little things that you need when someone's, you know, dying at home, meals and keeping things quiet, helping with the dogs and things like that. And when the wife died, the, the husband was a clockmaker and the wife was a, a, a beautiful musician. And when she passed, he destroyed her piano in the backyard and built my grandmother a grandfather clock from this woman's piano. And my grandmother had it in the house all of my life. And every time it would, it would chime, you know, I would think, wow, that's, to me, that was so poetical that someone would do that to my grandmother. Oh, it was just yeah. a, a nice gift, you know. And then she would do things like um, several old buildings in our hometown were being were falling apart or falling down or being changed into something. And she would gather my cousins and I on Saturday mornings when we all wanted to sleep in or watch cartoons. And she would put us in her car and have us go and collect any of the little red bricks that had been broken and built a patio, her own patio around a tree in the backyard out of all these broken bricks. And she knew every brick, every place that every brick had come from 
had some kind of little story. So I realized that there, that she really she didn't write poetry, but she she existed within a space of rhyme and rhythm and story, and she passed that on to me, and I really appreciate her for that. But it wasn't until I was in high school that I started experimenting with writing poetry for myself. And I had a really great teacher, Mrs. Hollingsworth. Shout out to Mrs. Hollingsworth, who adored me and um, made it a point to let me know. And I did, at that point, kind of feel like I was nobody's darling because I had a, a, you know, some physical issues that other people didn't have. And I pushed into the writing, and she was very encouraging. And I think that's how I began to write for myself as as a healing art was really I just wanted a, a way to talk about things that were important to me which weren't so much like getting married or things that a lot of the other girls were talking about for me were different I I was more interested in exploring death and <laughs> I was like that too when I was younger you know, a lot of death poems yeah you see a lot of <laughs> dead things around the yard and yeah think where did this thing go its little body is here but Where's the rest of it? You know, those kind of things. Yeah. Death poems. Death poems and pain poems and, yeah. Abandonment. Yeah. Erasure. You know, not being able to be all these things that we're maybe taught or we believe on our own should be silenced or suppressed. And being able to just give those voice. Very empowering and very healing. And also there's such an, you know, poetry calls for such an, economic word use. Yeah, that's something I definitely wanted you to talk a little bit more about. I mean, in your poetry, you the, your your poetry is very authentic. And I get the sense that like when I'm reading, you're very much aware of making sure that you maintain that authenticity of not just yourself, but also of the place. It's like I can tell when I read your poetry that you very much care about the place in which a lot of these memories and ideas and feelings came out of. And but you don't you don't have extraneous flowery words in most of the poems that I've read of yours. They're very um, minimalistic, minimalistic. But and I, I hate to say that it makes it more accessible, but it does make it more accessible to the average person, I think, in many ways at the same time without losing any richness, of course. Well, that's a very nice compliment. Thank you, because I'd much prefer to be authentic than even original. I mean, that's, to me, more important to be authentic to my own voice and also to be able to reach other people. I think it, I think poetry creates a space for empathy. I mean, even uh, Raphael Campo, do you know him? He's, a, the, he's the head of the arts and literature department at Harvard, but he's also a physician and a poet and he talks largely about how medical school students now are have to take poetry because it creates um it helps them develop their empathy lobe so I think that in being authentic it's not only am I creating empathetic space for myself they become a little a little less heavy you know things that I remember think about that seem very rich and could almost be prohibitive to like forward movement for me on my own journey if I write about them and I'm authentic and I'm economic and in other words if I respond to the call that poetry is asking me to respond to which is to take these experiences and boil them down to the core 
to the essence of what I'm trying to say. Um, it lends itself more to healing and not so much a cure. I'm not really looking to, you know, modern medicine wants to cure. Mm, yeah. And and poetry wants to heal, which I think is a there's a difference because there is a point uh, for many people in their experience with physical healing or emotional. But, you know, for me, it started really with a lot of physical healings. Um, I, I have spent a lot of time in and out of hospitals and there's only so f much they can do at some point, you know, as far as curing or fixing or surgery, whatever's wrong. Then there's this space where there's just nobody knows what to do. And I think, you know, even my mother reading poetry to me in the hospital and then later as she was passing, I really didn't know what to do. My sister was doing all the things like, you know, dealing with the hospice people and the medicines and the things and and I had no clue what to do. So I just read poetry because that's what she did. And and it helped. It helped be it helped me be there with her and not be, you know, so focused on myself in that experience. You know, it brought us together. And I mean, even poems about death, you know, while she was dying. That's actually quite beautiful because I've watched people die and I wanted to talk about that process with them, but at the same time, not knowing uh, what's appropriate to talk to them about because it's a weird space. So being able to read something instead of maybe having a direct conversation seems like that would be an easy access point into, I don't know, maybe processing the reality of them dying with them in a way, you know, and pass the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when they're dying the at home. It's, it's a, it's a job to die. You know, it's yeah. not easy. And I think it's interesting that for me, for my mother was a very, very, uh, kind of a femme fatale, very sarcastic, really, really funny person. And even at the end, she kept her sense of humor. And so to be able to read little, even some silly poems and just know that she was appreciating them. And, you know, she, they had her on um, a lot of pain medicines and drugs. And she, my sister would say, don't ask her weird things. And I, I just don't, you know, read the poetry, but we just want to keep her quiet. I'm like, if not now, when? I mean, there are some things I want to ask her. And my sister was very concerned. And she caught me one time. I said, Mama, can you, can you see anybody? And, you know, and she said, like who? And I said, can you see Jesus? Because she was a Jesus girl. And I said, can you see Jesus? And she said, yeah. And I said, what does he look like? And she said, kind of like Richard Gere. And I said, <laughs> the actor? And she said, yeah. It just made me know that everybody's understanding of God or yeah. is so personal. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great story. I could never imagine that, he, that Jesus looked like Richard Gere. But, you know, it worked for her. So. I think what I'm saying is just the poetry and this the humanity of that space allows people to just continue to be themselves right up until the transition point, because you're still you. You're not the sum of your dying experience or your healing experience. Right. So I would love to hear some of the poems that you brought to read. Can you share a few poems with us? Sure. I would love to do that. I, I chose Can you some set specially. them up a little bit before you before yeah. you read them? Yeah, um, so um, this first poem is called Lazarus, and um, I've, I'm a person who's had a couple of near-death experiences, 
And I've noticed that after you, uh, after people think you're going to die and then you don't, there seems to be, at least from my experience, some kind of slight expectation that you might have, you might be privy to some information that they, they would like to have. Or maybe they think that you should be shed of all your flaws, you know, and like you're like Gandalf the White now and you're coming back like less gray. So I've been thinking a lot about Lazarus, the man Jesus called from the grave. What was it like for him later back at his sister's place? Did little kids peek in the windows to get a good look at his face? Did he live life again to the fullest, walk around in a daze? Did he cry late at night from the memory of the dark and the dirt and the cold? Did he wish that he could have done something when they arrested the Christ on the road? Was he shed of all his bad habits, or was he the same old guy? Did he lie on his back on the green grass, counting the stars in the sky? Did he feel shy to be seen in public? reeking of incense and myrrh? Did food taste like nothing? Was water still sweet? Did sleeping seem like a blur? I've been thinking a lot about Lazarus. Jesus loved him the most. So, yeah, can we talk a little bit about Lazarus? I really enjoyed this poem. It's interesting because a lot of people have taken the myth, especially a lot of female poets have taken the myth of Lazarus and sort of um, reappropriated it. What what does Lazarus' story mean to you? Um, I, I think for me, Lazarus represents friendship, f- first of all, because I think the relationship between my understanding of this story in the Bible between the two sisters and Lazarus and Jesus, I always just think of them as friends. I never, it's never some profound I just think they were all friends, you know, and they maybe really accepted Christ as as a person that could do these profound acts of healing as if they'd been friends since they were children. They'd seen Christ bring birds back to life or whatever, you know, so like I always think of Christ as like this outcast person walking around on earth. And I for me, Lazarus represents the most profound aspect of friendship, which would be that you would go to death's door with a friend or you would, if you could, you would pull a friend back from the dead. And for this poem, for me, really comes from, you know, having experienced a a time in my life where people were told that I was going to die and I was like expected to die and then didn't die and how people had already started to adjust themselves to my death. They'd already started making plans for me being dead. And then I didn't die. So it was kind of like there was this experience where some people were very, very happy that I didn't die and and everything was like celebratory. But there were some people that had seemed kind of I don't want to say like they wanted me to die, but they they felt like they had prepared for this death. And now I was alive again. And now what did they do with me? Because now wasn't I different? Hadn't I had some you know, um, and they were afraid to ask, you know, what I saw or what I didn't see. And what if they ask and I didn't see anything? Or what if they ask and I'd seen something that didn't agree with what they were setting themselves up for? So Lazarus being in the dark, cold grave and there never being anything written about what he did afterwards, you know, 
it was just all Lazarus come out from the grave and he comes out in the grave clothes and he smells like, you know, frankincense and myrrh was used to entomb bodies. It wasn't like a something people wore when they were just going out to dinner, you know? And so I, I think, you know, they don't, there's nothing about that experience. So for me, it was just compelling to think about what did Lazarus do? Was he, and, and then even like his grief, not being able to do anything for Christ when they, you know, arrested the Christ and he had to just hear about it. And he, did he feel helpless? Did he just sit around and have dinner? Was he a freak in town? You know, so that's what Lazarus means to me is just friendship and, and death, you know, cold, dark, done being a human death and coming back into humanity from that has been a kind of surreal experience and you don't want to disappoint people, you know? Yeah, it seems like everybody now has a different expectation for you. That's what I see in this poem too is, is expectation for you to be something sublime or something better. Yeah. Transformed. All of my flaws just disappeared. (laughs) Wow. And in a way, I mean, I will say that I do, I, I feel, I do feel more grateful and attentive to my days and that feeling we talked about living poetically like my grandmother just she didn't know that she was doing that she just lived like that everything was you know if you're going to make an herb garden get an old wagon wheel and put all the herbs in the spokes you know that's poetic to her it was just a practical way to separate the rosemary from the thyme you know but I will say that after the death experience I feel at least, yeah, I do feel more grateful for just little things, you know, just my daughter, you know, things bug me less. That definitely has happened. I'm not as irritable with just things that I thought were so annoying. They're not so annoying. I'm just kind of grateful that they're happening. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's, it, there is a transformation there, but it's small. We it want is. something so big and profound, but maybe this small. And that is part of healing through poetry as a journey, as a practice, you know, healing, therapeutic healing through poetry as a practice to me means small transformation. It's transformative. It it allows for growth. It allows for change because, you know, writing this little poem did help me understand a little bit more about it provided some empathy for me, for other people. Because I thought, well, Lazarus, his his or her siblings, whoever they were, the people, Lazarus people, you know, they loved Lazarus. But they're only human. They can't help but be curious. It's not every day someone comes walking out of a grave. Right. I mean, you'd have questions. So writing about it helped me be a little let be a little more open to maybe talking with some closer family members about things that I did, that I did see, which is not something that I would just tell the wide world, perhaps, you know. You're not going to tell our listeners right now what you saw? No, I'm not going to share my <laughs> lots of light, <laughs> lots of, lots of darkness, lots of light, both, both there, lots of Hubble telescope action, <laughs> you know. I was in a coma. Once I was in a coma, and I wrote a poem about it. But here, here it goes. So it's called Coma Dope. 
No, I did not hear you in there. I was sword fighting, rabid skinheads, and flying rats alongside an army of my most badass ancestors, a cinematic, psychotropic, altered reality, and it was hard to hear anything but the battle rage. It's okay. It was probably best you were safe in the chair, rubbing oil on my feet. I did write that for a really um, dear woman who uh, rubbed oil on my feet every time she came to see me during the coma. Wow, that's a nice gesture. She was a, a really sweet, instrumental. I was very lucky during that time to have so many caring people, particularly women around, to help. And, um, yeah, I love this poem. Thanks for having it. How long were you in a coma? Um, o- over six weeks. So six weeks in this kind of altered dream state, right? Yes. And I love the cinematic psychotropic altered reality and the battle rage. Why? What, what was the battle rage? Can you talk about that a little bit? I think there was a sense, like I did have some knowledge that I didn't, I didn't know I was in a coma, but I knew that I was fighting for my life and it was playing out in this field of imagery in my mind either it's you know it's interesting because all of the hospital stays you know they have you on morphine and dilaudid and all these things you know and so sometimes I'm not sure if hallucinations are really hallucinations and definitely this experience in the coma I mean in theory, they would be hallucinations, right? Because in reality, I'm lying in the hospital bed. Someone's rubbing oil on my feet. But in my mind, I'm I'm fighting flying rats. And, you know, and there are my ancestors are there and people that I knew were my ancestors, but I had never met and, and like basically introduced themselves as my ancestors. And so for me, it was just this very otherworldly, intense experience of just trying to not be killed by these skinheads and these rats and these. So, you know, those, I guess, were my body's, my mind's reaction to just trying to keep living, you know, just trying to make it out of the coma, but really having no idea, you know, when I woke up, you know, I saw the green paint in the room, which is, and I knew immediately I wasn't in school. (laughs) So it's like, oh, this is a hospital. And then a lot of the real work really started. And it, and the time thing is interesting because I don't really know if I had those experiences. Maybe we're just one hour out of that six weeks time, or maybe that went on in my mind over the course of that six weeks time. It's interesting that I was even able to write that poem because it, in the beginning, when people were asking, did I remember anything from the coma? The main question people want to know is, did you hear me? They wanted to know that their love, their positive affirmations, their songs, their things that they were saying to try to help me. They wanted to know that I heard them. And, you know, I feel like I I did that that feeling of what they were sending came through and helped me fight, you know, the skinheads and the rats, but I didn't actually hear their voices. You know, and I like to be more bold to be able to talk about that. I'd like to speak to some other people that have been in comas and see what their experience is. I'm fascinated by the idea of the time 
and just time, like comp like sequential time being a compelling mirage. There's really not any sequential time. And just what happens, you know, I've been saying what happens in the coma stays in the coma. We should be able to talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, openly. I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think it's one of those spaces that we're talking about that, you know, maybe I feel like I should be silent or suppress because I think people might, you know, this is what I think. Maybe people will be tripped out by me saying they were, you know, flying rats and skinheads and they're like, oh, I'm never in a coma. But I think, it, you know, nobody ever wants to be in a coma, maybe a food coma. But, you know, I I don't know. Um, so this I wrote this after um, an illness and um, some of the women that were there for me were seasonal, as friendships tend to be sometimes. And this is just a tribute to those women from me. Um, and they are, they're sailing women. They live around here. Uh, so it's called Sailing Women. Sailing Women, the last time I saw you, we were at sea. It was exhilarating to watch you handle a tall ship. Kept us cutting through the clearest, cleanest water. The whole of it sparkling, just like you said, emeralds after all. You were born to sail. Yes, ma'am, I do believe that's true. I felt bad not having much to offer in the way of help. I did gut the fish. That last bit we ate the next morning. Remember how ravenous we were after that storm? Especially you, baby. You worked so hard to keep us from going under. Lost at sea. I shudder to think. Yeah, I was so happy to be alive, sitting beside you lean, agile, wild women, gobbling down sea bass at sunrise. I love having a story about women lost at sea because normally that metaphor of being lost at sea you find typically in male poetry and oh, male stories. So here you are with a on a boat full of women sailing their own course lost at sea. I like that. And steering me through my lost, I mean, and these are sailing women. These women do sail. That also relates to the idea that we need community. We need women to support one another. Like really though, we say that a lot of times. I feel like it's a lot of talk, but how many women are really truly there with you in these very difficult moments? And how many women does it take to make up one woman? You know, there were many women. I was so blessed during this coma dope experience. Was this during your coma? It yeah. was. And there were women who, you know, took care of my daughter, helped, helped my partner, like everything that I needed, my parents and everybody needed help, you know, and, um, I feel like they just band together like a band of women, a, a sailing crew of women. You know, it takes a crew to sail a ship. And I feel like they just intuitively knew how to uh, work in tandem off each other. I mean, a lot of the men were falling apart and really just not able to handle it. I think maybe because, I don't know, maybe it's because women can, you know, we're mysterious anyway. We can bleed for three days without dying. We can give birth to children. Maybe men in those moments are not as familiar with their emotions and don't quite know how to deal with them, whereas women are constantly dealing with these strong emotions while nursing a baby, while someone's dying, you know? Yeah. You're always in the middle of those things, so you just learn naturally, I think. But I, I, some men can do that. I don't know. 
I do love this poem, though. I love the imagery of um, them being lean and agile wild women and then coming out of it and we're gobbling sea bass. Mm. You know, that I just love that imagery. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is appealing because it's normally like men that you read about sailing vessels. I hadn't really thought about that till you said it, but it's true. I, it's like a badass thing to do, sail a big ship. Yeah, it really is. Especially by yourself. Yes. You know, with a couple other women at sea, that's pretty cool. I always feel really cool when I get to drive the boat. Yeah, <laughs> if I get to steer. <laughs> and that's barely anything. That's certainly not boat independence, but no, it I makes can me feel better. good. I have watched them sail and they're, they're, they have to have a certain language and everybody's moving together and, and you know, I know nothing about it, but it was impressive. <laughs> and I love them for it. Some of them I don't even see anymore. This is a, a poem about my grandparents and the home that they lived in. And uh, it's called BB, which was uh, my grandmother's pet name. Her name was Beatrice, but everyone called her BB or B. She was from Evergreen, Alabama. The bees came to live in my grandparents' attic the summer granddaddy died. They warbled back and forth, fat under the weight of a good Alabama summer, down to the honeysuckle vines, wrapped around the old Bel Air in the side yard. The leather seats were ripped, driver's door rusty hanging by a hinge. The disease had ravaged my grandfather's body. He used to drive the old coal train. Montgomery to Mobile, on over to Tupelo. In the end, he couldn't even say my name, and do you know how much he loved me? He could moan, though, grandmother's name, because it was easy. Bee, buzz, bee, buzz. All day, Papa and the bees hummed. The old house I still dream about was filled with the vibration of their strange little song, it shimmied down my spine and filled my head like a long lullaby. I sat beside Papa drinking the cold Cokes in the little green bottles Grandmama kept in the icebox on the back porch. We watched the bees outside the window, me and Granddaddy, when it got too hot for me to play outside. I was not afraid of death then, at ten. I prayed it would come for him. When it did, the bees left too, leaving only the queen behind and honey dripped from the ceiling until the early fall. I love mixing prose and poetry together. There's so much freedom there because you don't have to really adhere to form. I love that you keep your poems grounded in the South and Thank just you. kind of grounded in some of that really uh, authentically Southern imagery. Like, I can just, I you know, my grandparents had those cold cokes in the glass bottles you know and I just remember like having an ice back on the back porch they didn't have one you know the refrigerator didn't have a separate ice box so we had one of those really big ones on the back porch they even had like metal ice trays yeah which I remember think I mean I was thinking about that the other day because we have these plastic ones and I can never get the ice out of them you have to like twist them a certain way but Theirs had a latch, yeah. and you just pulled up the latch, and the ice came out. And it cracked. It made yeah, a really it dramatic cracks. sound. Yeah. And those little bottles were always so ice cold that the frost would drip down. Yes. Them. And you always felt so 
I felt so grown up whenever I got to have one because you could just, when my mother wasn't there, my grandmother would just let us go get them at will. And it always made me feel so groany. Yeah. I do really love writing about the South. I, I love the culture of the South and the great rhythm and music that comes from the former Cherokee Nation, which is part of my lineage. My grandmother was um, Muscogee Creek and, um, you know, Scottish, Irish, that the rhythm of the sound of the voices and how all that ties into poetry and music. Very poetic people. So much song and rhythm everywhere. Too. Yeah, so can we just uh, pause for a second for our listeners and uh, make this transition into talking about your music? So not only are you a poet, but you're a musician, and you produce your own music and you write your own songs, and you're currently working on a lullaby project. Um, are you writing new lullabies or are you recreating old lullabies? Both. And I'm also um, hoping to, I, I want other people to contribute. Um, we've just started, I have a partner and we've just started trying to figure out exactly what we're putting a call out for because some of the lullabies are old and we would like to um, just kind of an ethnomusicology project, be able to record some elders who are still singing some of the older lullabies, but also some of the newer ones that were created during the pandemic or during this time that that mothers are singing and just get those recorded and just explore the space of, of lullabies. You know, have you ever tiptoed in a room where a mother's singing a lullaby to a child? It's kind of like you're in a little dream space that you maybe shouldn't be in, but it's very beautiful and um, kind of that idea, you know, just exploring that and hopefully recording the voices of of women singing. I'm hoping that we can get some other women to sing, and if they've written one, that would be great too. So exploring that through lullabies, and I got really interested in lullabies because I began to think about how really what set me off with the lullaby thing, just thinking about how hard it would be to be an African-American woman, a slave, singing a lullaby to a little white baby while your child had been sold off into slavery. You may never see them again. Like, how would that even be? And going back through the Library of Congress, some recordings that were made and listening um, and just exploring the dark side of lullabies and how dark they really tend to be. The oldest one that I found was from uh, Babylonian time, and it was about the sun god. And the basic translation of the lullaby is about the, the child disturbing the sun god and the sun god almost being afraid of the child. And the person singing the lullaby is saying, you've woken the sun god, and if, you're not, if you don't quiet down, little baby, he's going to eat you. And then I just thought, that is so <laughs> creepy. And then who would sing that to a baby? But then I started thinking a lot of the lullabies are very dark. And I think that it's because, again, poetry, lullaby, all of that space is is so sacred. And when you're singing a lullaby to a baby, you're generally alone. And, you know, the baby's been crying. Maybe, maybe nobody's home. And particularly, like, during the Depression and before, and, you know, when things are really, really pandemics, when things are difficult and... It's maybe a space where you can be allowed to emote some of the things that are happening because the baby is really just looking for the tone 
the melody, the softness. And you can sing things about, you know, daddy's down in the coal mine. Who knows if he'll ever come back? Um, I wrote one that the poem that I read, B.B., that grandfather, was an um, engineer. Um, he was also an orphan. His mother died in childbirth, and his uh, father was killed two weeks later in a black warrior coal mining accident. So he has this very dark childhood kind of history. And um, he, when my grandmother passed, I inherited this trunk of her ephemera and memorabilia. And there was a little handbook that was his coal mining company. I think it was called the Diamond Coal Mine Rules and Regulations. And I was just looking through it. And in the back, he had written a tiny little poem to my grandmother prior to them marrying that just said he'd been picking cotton in Georgia and, and, you know, it was this depression era and he, but he had written to her that if she would marry him, that he would, he wouldn't pick cotton anymore in in some rich man's field in Georgia and he wouldn't go down in the coal mines and instead he would be a railroad man and he would, he would stay in Alabama if she'd marry him and she did marry him and he did become a railroad man. So I turned that into a little lullaby. So that'll be my contribution to this project. Oh, and you're going to share that with us today, aren't you? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, when you talk about me being a musician, I want to be clear and say that I do use um, music like poetry. I use the vibrations to treat pain when I play this ukulele. And I use, I, um, bastardize a lot of my poems into songs so I wrote this little lullaby for my daughter hush babe don't you cry mama's singing lullabies daddy's in the cotton and corn been out there since early morn Hush, babe, don't you cry. Mama's singing lullabies. Daddy's in the cold, dark mine. Praise home by morning time. Hush, baby, don't you cry. Mama's singing lullabies. Daddy is a railroad man. Hold the line in Alabama. Hold the line in Alabama. Hush, babe, don't you cry. Mama's singing lullabies. I'm so excited and happy that you joined me today. And can you tell our listeners how they can find your music and how they can find your poetry? Some of my poetry is on Instagram. So that's underscore Thibodeau, T-H-I-B-O-D-E-A-U-X underscore. And um, any music or 
anything about the Lullaby, if anyone's interested in participating in the Lullaby Project, they could find me at info at bbroyal.org. That is a small mm, grassroots publishing company that I am collectively building with some other artists and musicians. And we're not quite, we haven't quite launched it yet, but the email's up and running. So info at bbroyal.org. And that, that's for the Lullaby Project or any music that you might be interested in. I think we're on Spotify now. Emeralds After All. <laughs> Emeralds After All. Is that the name of your band? It is. Yes. And um, and uh, there was a reference to that in poetry um, that we read today. So that's cool to be able to give a little plug to Emeralds After All. Oh, I appreciate it. Right. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you. You made it easy. The Hunt South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment, and we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with FemSouth, you can go to our website at femsouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash FemSouth, where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to FemSouth. Thank you.